Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. We are continuing and nearly finished with our study through the book of Romans. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at chapter 16, verses uh, 1 through 16. Some of you are old enough to remember landlines. Do you know what I'm talking about? Telephones that are are tethered to a, a specific physical location. When I was a kid, um, we had a, a phone in our kitchen, and it was mounted on the wall, and it had a, a really long cord so that if you needed a bit of privacy, you could kind of make your way into the, the dining room or, an, or the hallway or something like that. And um, we also had a phone on the second floor. And an interesting thing with the landlines is, um, you know, somebody could be talking on the phone, and if you had another phone in the house, you could quietly pick up the receiver, and if you were, you know, quiet enough you could get away with listening to the conversation. Um, I don't know. I never did that. But um, you, it was an interesting thing you could do. And as, as we come to Romans chapter 16, where Paul's giving a, a bunch of personal greetings to uh, folks, Christian believers in Rome, it kind of feels like we're eavesdropping on a, on a phone call, like we're listening in to a conversation that's not really meant um, for us. And... Um, you know, he's finished his, his glorious exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's finished the, the in-depth application of the gospel and, and how it impacts our daily lives as Christians. And, and now, he just kind of, he says 16 times, greet so-and-so, and, and names a bunch of names most of us have never heard of. And, um, you know, maybe... After I read this in a moment, or if you've peeked at the the bulletin where the text is printed, maybe you're wondering, what in the world are we supposed to get out of this? Um, I mean, I can barely pronounce some of the the names. What is is this about? These people lived and died centuries ago. What value is it to us? Um, On the one hand, it it gives us a little glimpse of the early church. We get this cross-section of, in many ways, an ordinary Christian church in the first century, um, you know, it, we see who they were, how they understood themselves, um, how they related to each other, what was important to them. But, but more than that, more than just, you know, the historical value, there are lessons here for us about the, the kind of church God is fashioning us into. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that this morning. I want to read the passage for you, um, Romans 16, verses 1 to 16. It's page 950 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. It's also printed on page 8 in your order of worship. Um, This is God's word. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They were well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who was approved in Christ. 
Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Marius, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer and ask for his help. Our God and Father, as we come to your word today, uh, would you cause it to take root in us, deep within us, Lord? Would you use your word of grace to transform us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, three points this morning as we look at um, this you know, list of greetings, I want us to see a few things about the church in Rome. I want us to see first the church's diversity, second the church's unity, and then I want to talk about what does it mean for us. So first let's talk about the church's diversity. Now I realize I just said the D word, and um, some of you have probably sat through diversity and inclusion training in maybe the workplace or in school, and as you listen to it, you know, some of it sounded reasonable. Other parts of it, you know, not so much. And, and you might be sitting there thinking, Where, where's this guy going with this, this talk about diversity? Let me say this up front. Uh, secularists did not invent diversity, okay? We, we need to realize that as Christians. Um, diversity is God's idea. He invented it, and, and I'll say more about that in a bit, but, but we can affirm our culture's desire to honor God-given diversity while also critiquing our culture's distortions of God-given diversity. And, but we need to make certain as Christians that, that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, again, diversity is God's idea, and, and we need to celebrate that. So the, the church in Rome was very diverse, and we see that diversity in, in several ways. Uh, the first is the church was ethnically diverse. Um, the Christians in Rome um, came from different parts of the world. In verse 5, um, Paul talks about this uh, man who was the first convert in Asia, that is modern-day Turkey, but now lives in Rome. Most likely he was converted under Paul's ministry in, in Ephesus. Um, in verse 13, Paul mentions uh, a man named Rufus and his mother. And, and many scholars think this is the same Rufus mentioned in Mark 15. Uh, Mark talks about a man, uh, Simon of Cyrene, who had two sons, um, Alexander and Rufus. And you remember, uh, Simon carried Jesus' cross for him. And he was from a place called uh, Cyrene, which is a, a city on the coast of North Africa. And, and others here in the church came from other parts of the world. Uh, Rome, as you as you know, as the capital of the, the empire, was a melting pot of sorts, of ethnicities and languages and cultures. And Paul names 26 people here in Rome. Um, 18 of the names are Greek names. Eight of the names are, are Latin names. And a, and a handful, a smaller number of them are, are Jewish, like Mary in verse 6, or, or Herodian in verse 11, and, and the church at Rome, in a sense, reflected the diversity of, of Rome itself. 
Um, you have a, a church where Greek is the, the common language, but not the first language for most of these folks, especially the ones who came from other parts of the empire. A Greek would have been a, a second language for many of them. Few of, of these Christians here in Rome would have been native Romans. This was a, an immigrant church. And the, and the churches. Um, you know, ethnic diversity, Jews, Gentiles, all kinds of different Gentiles. It might not seem that um, remarkable to us, but, but this was really unheard of in the first century. You see, in, in, in Paul's world, your religion is, was, for all intents and purposes, tied to your ethnicity, tied maybe to your, your nationality. But here you have... Um, this, this group of people from, from different regions whose, whose native languages are different, from different cultures, and yet they're worshiping the same God. And, and not just you know, by themselves, together, as, as one people. Is, this was shocking to the Roman world, and, and especially because this, this diversity of people spoke of themselves as if they were one. One, and we'll talk more about that in a, in a bit. But not only was this church ethnically diverse, it was socially diverse. Um, you know, in the Roman world, uh, they were much more class conscious than, than we are here in, in 21st century America. Um, you know, think of the Roman world. Think um, Downton Abbey with togas and tunics. That, that, that's kind of, you know, the, the feel of, of the Roman world. And Many of the names Paul mentions here were, were common names of slaves, common names of freed persons, people who were former slaves. For example, in verses 8 and 9, he, he mentions Ampliatus, Urbanus, Stachys, and then um, verse 12, Tryphena and Tryphosa, who were probably sisters, and another woman named Persis. Um, in verse 14, he, he mentions five names that are all common names of male slaves, and so Many of these, these brothers and sisters in the Lord in the church at Rome were either currently slaves or formerly had been slaves, so rather low on the, on the social hierarchy. Um, some of them were people of means. For example, look at verses 3 to 5. Uh, Paul talks about Prisca or Priscilla. She's often referred to as Priscilla in the book of Acts, and her husband Aquila. Um, they, they must have been people of means. Paul says they, they hosted a church in their home. And so they, they had to have had a, a home large enough to accommodate, you know, let's say 30 to 40 Christians gathering for worship. Um, they had the means and the freedom to move throughout the empire. We, we meet them first in, in the book of Acts in chapter 18 where they, they encounter Paul in Corinth and they had come to Corinth after uh, Claudius, the emperor, the emperor um, expelled all the Jews from Rome in A.D. 49 or, or 50. And so they flee to Corinth, meet Paul, um, join the church there in Corinth. Later they, they pick up and move with Paul to Ephesus and minister with him there in, in Ephesus for a number of years. And then at some point, um, probably after Claudius died, um, they, they head back to Rome and, and settle back down in the church at Rome. And so they, they must have been people of, of means. And so you have, you have a church where there's, there's ethnic diversity, a church where um, um, people come from different ends of the, the social hierarchy, but probably the, the aspect of diversity that's the most um, shocking to us is, is the fact that um, 
or the role that women played in the church in the early church. Um, the, Paul, um, as you might know, has a reputation among modern people for being a, a male chauvinist, and it's really an undeserved reputation. Um, of the 26 named individuals he mentions in this chapter, 10 of them are women. And Paul, here in this chapter, praises various women for working hard in gospel ministry. Look at verse 6. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. And then verse 12, he mentions three, three more women. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Uh, greet the beloved Persis, another woman who has worked hard in the Lord. And, and that, that language of, of working hard in the Lord, that's the same terminology Paul uses to describe his own gospel ministry and the, and the ministry of his, his male co-workers. And it, it conveys the idea of, of courage, of um, commitment, toughness, um, a, a deep passion for the gospel. And, and we don't know specifically what, what these women did in Rome, what their role was, but, but clearly they played significant roles in the church, enough for Paul to, to highlight um, their ministry here in his letter. Um, look, look again at what Paul says about um, Prisca in, in verses 3 to 5. Paul calls her a fellow worker, a, a, a co-laborer in the gospel. And he says in verse 4 that, that Prisca and her husband Aquila, they risked their necks for my life. Now, we want to know what happened, and unfortunately we, we don't know for sure, but, but clearly they put their lives on the line for Paul's sake. And, and he praises Prisca as a, as a courageous Christian and says, you know, he gives thanks for her, for, for them, as do all the Gentile churches. Um, another woman in, in verse 7, uh, Junia, Paul refers to her and, and this man, Andronicus, who's probably um, her husband. Uh, he calls them kinsmen, probably meaning um, fellow, Jew, fellow Jews, not, not direct uh, relatives. But notice he says that they, he calls them fellow prisoners. Fellow prisoners. Again, we want to know the details. Um, we, we don't know specifics, could mean they had been imprisoned with Paul at the same time. Um, more likely, they themselves, and, and Junia in particular, had been imprisoned at some other time, just like Paul had been for his, his gospel ministry. Um, Paul says that they were well known to the apostles. It's probably not the best translation, a better translation would be prominent among the apostles. And, and either's, either translation is possible um, grammatically, but um, all the church fathers unanimously agreed, and many of them were native Greek speakers, that Paul's saying that these two, and think about this, Junia was prominent among the apostles, that, that both uh, belong to it, the apostolic band. Now, now, Paul doesn't mean the twelve commissioned by Jesus. Um, apostle can mean sent one, messenger. Um, the, the idea here is they're commissioned missionaries. And again, Paul doesn't just focus on the men. He highlights even this, this woman, Junia, and her valuable ministry. Um, a little later, verse 13, Paul talks about um, Rufus's mother. Um, 
And, and he doesn't say a whole lot about her other than that she, she has served as a mother to him, you know, somebody who's, who's provide, provided care, um, and not just to him, but to many others, probably um, opened her home to Paul and other ministry workers, maybe financially supported Paul and other ministry workers. And then finally, Paul talks about a woman named Phoebe in verses 1 to 2. And uh, Phoebe's not a member of the church at Rome. She comes from Sincrea, which is a, a port city near Corinth. And, and notice how he describes Phoebe. He, sa- he calls her our sister, highlighting her, her status as a child of God. She's a fellow heir with Christ along with her brothers in the Lord. He calls her a servant of the church at Sancria. Servant could also be translated deacon. And there's a lot of debate. Uh, what, what exactly was you know, Phoebe's role at her home church? And whatever it was, she's clearly a prominent figure in her church. Um, Paul calls her a patron. A, a, a patron is a, is a benefactor, a, a person of, of social influence, usually a person um, with wealth, and they, they use their resources to benefit the community. So in, in, a, in a typical Roman um, town, uh, a patron would uh, provide funds to build public baths. They would host community festivals. They, they would give loans to freed slaves so that the freed slave could um, start a business. And so Phoebe, probably a woman of, of means, used her wealth, Paul says, to support him and, and probably the ch- her home church. And so this woman, Phoebe, is traveling from her home in Sincrea to Rome, probably to deal with a business matter, maybe a, a legal issue, but, but there's more to it than that. You notice what Paul says about her there. I, I commend her to you. I commend her to you, meaning... Phoebe comes to Rome as Paul's trusted representative. She's, she's coming as, a, as an emissary or agent on Paul's behalf, and, and she comes with a message. She brings a message to, to Rome, and do you know what that message is? It's the letter to the Romans. Virtually every scholar agrees that the reason Paul commends her to the church is because she comes as the letter carrier. And, and just think about this for a moment. Paul entrusts his greatest letter, arguably his greatest letter, perhaps even the greatest letter ever written in world history, he entrusts it to a woman. And you have to realize there, there was no postal service in, first century, in the first century Roman world. And, and so you gave letters to trustworthy couriers, people of character, people who knew you, people who would be sent out with your authority. And very often, couriers read uh, the letter to the recipients. And if that was the case here, the church in Rome first heard the glorious news of Romans from the lips of Phoebe herself. And so you have this this church in Rome, a a multi-ethnic community, a, a socially diverse Church, a church where um, men and women are treated as equals, a church where women's ministry and women's gifts are, are honored and, and celebrated, and not just in the realm of um, you know, childcare and cooking, but, but gospel work. 
And, and again, I said earlier, this diversity is not an accident. Okay, this is this is God's design for the church. Um, diversity is rooted in God's very being. Think about it. We we worship one God, but He's three persons, right? Three distinct persons in the Godhead: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Father is not the Son, and the Son isn't the Father, and neither the fun, neither the Father nor the Son are the Holy Spirit. They are distinct. Persons, there's diversity within God Himself. Um, God created human beings to be His image bearers, and, and what did He create? Created humanity, male and female, two sexes, diversity. Um, in His providence, this world is filled with with different cultures and different languages and different ethnicities. You even have different skin colors, and it's all God's doing. God delights in diversity. He he loves diversity. Diversity, God-given diversity, shows off his his multifaceted glory. And and, and I think what we need to realize is diversity makes a church healthier. You might think that diversity just kind of dilutes the strength of a a church, but diversity enriches a church's life. Let me just talk about one way it it does this. Um, We all read the Bible with cultural blinders on. Um, and that's true whether you're a, a North American Christian or an Indonesian Christian. Uh, this is what it means to be somebody who's rooted in a particular culture. Um, we all have ways of, of seeing the world and reading the Bible that are shaped by our cultural location. And, and often we're not even aware of those cultural assumptions, right? You, you think of an iceberg. You know, the, the tip of the iceberg is visible above the surface, but, but underneath the surface, unseen, there's the bulk of the iceberg. And we often, uh, we're not even aware of these assumptions. We, we don't question them because we don't realize um, how shaped we are by them. Uh, for example, 100 um, North American students were asked to read and retell the parable of the prodigal son, you know, a story we, we know very well. And, and only six of these 100 uh, people who read and retold the story mentioned the fact that there's a famine in the story. And when I read this, I thought, i got to go back and read this. <laughs> yep, there, sure enough, there is a famine. Um, famine just isn't on our radar for the most part as Americans, right? I mean, we, we can go down the street to the grocery store and it's just like overflowing with food. Um, it's not really something we worry about. However, um, 50 Russian readers were asked to retell the, the story of the um, prodigal son and nearly every single one of them mentioned the famine. Why? Because famine is just embedded in, in Russia's cultural memory. You know, the famine that, that happened during World War II that really devastated the country. It's just, it shaped their way of viewing the world. They can't help but notice the fact that there's a famine in this story. Um, one other example, you know, as, as Western Christians, we kind of have a, um, a me-focused way of reading the Bible. Um, kind of a, a me-centered approach to it. You know, the, the questions we ask are, what does this mean for me? What does this mean to me? How does this help me personally? Um, 
Christians from, from African cultures or Asian cultures, that, that's not where they go first. You know, they, they say, what does this mean for us? How do I, how does this help me better honor the community? Uh, they're much more community-focused. They tend to be much more attuned to the, the social implications of the gospel, whereas Western readers are more attuned to the personal implications of the gospel. And it, it's not that one reading is right and the other is wrong, or, or one reading is better uh, than the other. We, we need both. The, the church of Jesus Christ and even local churches are enriched by the, the different insights that God gives to different members of Christ's church. Um, a, a church will be stronger and healthier when it's diverse. And so the, the first thing we see about the church in Rome is its diversity, but second, it's, it's unity. It's unity. So, yes, this church at Rome, highly diverse, probably much more diverse than, than we're accustomed to. And, and despite all those differences, these early Christians saw themselves as one family. One family. Look at, um, Paul calls Phoebe in verse 1, our sister. Um, he, in verse 14, he refers to a group of Gentile Christians. Remember, Paul is a, a Jewish Christian. He re- calls a group of Gentile Christians our brothers and sisters. Um, he uses affectionate language. Um, in verse 5, my beloved. Again, in verse 8, uh, greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Verse 12, greet the beloved Persis. They were one family. Um, They saw themselves as as one church. Um, Paul um, mentions at least five different excuse me, almost at least five different house churches in in Rome. Um, The the church that met in Priscilla and Aquila's house in verse five, a a second one, the household of Aristobulus in verse ten. Um, the household of Narcissus in, in verse 11. What a name. Um, a fourth in verse 14. Um, and then a, a fifth house church in verse 15. You have these, these different groups meeting in, in homes. And again, maybe anywhere from 30 to 40 believers in these, in these homes. And, and each house church had its own leaders, had its own prominent members. And yet, Paul addresses them as one church. One church. Um, they didn't. They didn't split up into Gentile churches and Jewish churches. They didn't, you know, segregate themselves into this is the slave church. This is the, you know, the middle class church. They were one diverse church. And again, it's it's difficult for us to grasp just how, you know, radical this kind of thing was. But but you know, imagine. Um, Ukrainian Christians and Russian Christians worshiping together in the same church, or Israeli Christians and Palestinian Christians worshiping together in the same church. It, it, it was a radical thing, the way the gospel brought these people together. So they were one family, one church. They had a shared identity, shared identity. Paul uses the phrase in Christ or in the Lord um, four different times. This is how they saw themselves. Yes, some of us are, are Jewish. Yes, some of us are, are Gentiles. Some of us maybe you know, have Latin roots, but, but we are people in Christ. 
That's their identity. Um, The gospel didn't obliterate the differences, but it gave them a new identity. And in Christ, identity that's more basic and, and more fundamental than their other identities. And the gospel of Jesus Christ bound these Christians together. You know, it's, it's what Paul's been talking about in Romans. All of us, despite all of our differences, all of us were in the same predicament because of sin. All lost and dead in sin, guilty before God, under his judgment. And yet Jesus Christ is the Savior of all people, Paul has been proclaiming. Not just one race or one class, all people. All are saved in the same way through faith in Jesus Christ. All are justified in Christ, all have the same standing in the family of God. That, that's their identity, a shared identity. And then finally, they, they express their unity in a, in a very concrete um, physical act, the holy kiss. Look at verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, one commentator called the, the early Christians um, kissing Christians. Um, You know, it's a very common greeting in the ancient world. Um, It wasn't an exclusively Christian practice. Um, It did become part of the church's standard liturgy in the second century. um, And some of you have probably seen it still practiced by some Christian traditions um, today. What what was this about? Uh, What's this holy kiss? Uh, Tim Keller points out four characteristics. I'll just go through these quickly. He says, uh, number one, the holy kiss expressed family affection. So this isn't about romantic love. This is family affection. Number two, this kiss was the holy kiss, wholesome kiss. There's nothing creepy, nothing scandalous about this kiss. Uh, Number three, it was demonstrative. And this is really significant. It's it's an embodied expression of Christian fellowship. Not not just saying, yeah, of course, we we were one in Christ, but they they showed it. And then fourth, um, it was culturally conditioned. You see, in that culture, this kind of greeting expressed friendship. This kind of greeting expressed um, welcome. Um, And the Christians took an existing cultural practice and they they infused it with Christian significance and meaning. Um, But a a kiss like this might not express friendship and love in in every culture, right? In, In some cultures, it could be downright weird to do something like this. Um, you know, it's amusing. Uh, J.B. Phillips was a British Bible translator in the 20th century, and um, he did a great paraphrase of the New Testament. And he gave Paul's command here a very British feel. This is how he, he translates verse 16 Give each other a hearty handshake all around. You know, it's just very British. Um, I've been to a church that that tried to do something a little more expressive than a handshake. You know, maybe a handshake feels um, too formal. And so so at this church, after the opening song, the pastor asked the congregation to stand and then to turn to our right. And then he instructed us to give the person standing in front of us a back rub as as a form of Christian greeting. And and it, it certainly didn't give me a sense of Christian fellowship. I mean... I was like, where's the door? I want to get out of here. Um, Another time, I I worshipped in a small church in Dublin, Ireland, and just a a wonderful little congregation, just about about 15 believers or so, very warm, very friendly. And they used a shared communion cup. 
Um, I loved the symbolism. You know, one cup, one church. I did not love the practice. Um, along with the cup, they passed around a little towel. So when you received the cup, you could wipe the lip of the cup off. And um, the, the woman seated in front of me, um, before she received the cup and before she drank, um, I thought she was going to hack up a lung. And, and she does her coughing fit, drinks from the cup, and then turns around and hands it to me. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do right now? Um, I don't want to get whatever she has, but I don't want to offend these folks either. So I just kind of threw some of the wine into my mouth and never let my lips touch the, the cup. See, the, the point of the holy kiss was to demonstrate fellowship in a, in a very tangible way, in a, in a very physical, embodied way. And the exact form of this expression is not, not the important thing here. That's why we don't do the holy kiss in our service. Uh, the, the point is to show fellowship, to show friendship. Um, you know, I'm all for a, a hearty handshake. That does the job, does the job well. Maybe even a hug. Um, you know, that's great. Um, I, I'm being a little facetious. Um, so the the church at Rome, it, it's a very diverse community. It's a it's a united community. But what does all that mean for us? I mean, that's great. The church at Rome, um, it's interesting to to learn a little bit about it, but what does it mean for us? Uh, Again, none of this is an an accident of history, okay? This is is God's intention for his church. This is God's intention for local churches. Unity in diversity and diversity in unity. That's that's God's design. And And that's... That's the kind of church we want to be as we, as we drink in the, the gospel presented to us in the book of Romans. We want to be a church that is diverse, but also united. Not, not one or the other, we want both. Um, why is unity and diversity important? You know, is it just about being trendy and cool, you know, that it kind of gets people's attention? It, it's nothing like that. Let, let me give you two reasons why unity and diversity is important. Um, The first is this, because of the church's future. Unity and diversity is important because of the church's future. Um, Think about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation gives us this this wonderful portrait of the church in eternity, in the new heavens and the new earth, when all things are made new. And and what do we see? We see a, a glorious, radiant bride being united to her husband, Jesus Christ. And that bride is a multi-ethnic community. That, that bride um, is made up of people from every tribe and tongue and people and language. And, and in that day, you and I are going to look out on the, the redeemed community and we're going to see um, diversity like we've never seen it before. We're going we're gonna to see different facial features, skin colors, customs, cultures. And, and right in the middle of it all, is going to be our brown-skinned Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, being worshipped by His diverse people. And, and this diverse community will praise Him as one people, though. One people bought by the blood of the Lamb. And, and I don't know exactly what that's going to sound like. I don't know if you've ever tried to think of this. All these different people. How, what language are we going to speak? My, my Greek professor said it would be Greek. My, my Hebrew professor said Hebrew was the heavenly language. 
Um, who knows? It's going to sound beautiful. It's going to look beautiful, whatever it is. That's the future of the church. And, and, and our calling as Christ's people is to begin practicing unity and diversity now because that's where we're headed we're to be practicing it now. So that's the first reason. The second is for the sake of the gospel. The second reason it's so important for a local church to, to embody unity and diversity is for the sake of the gospel itself. Um, do you remember Jesus' prayer in John 17? The amazing prayer that Jesus offers before he goes to the cross. And, and we get to listen in as, as Jesus bears his heart to the Father. He prays for his church. And do you know what he prays? He prays that his church would be diverse but unified. He says there in John 17, I pray that they all may be one. So all, that's the the diversity. One, that's the the unity. And and why? Why why does Jesus pray for this? Well, he says in, in verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you hear what what Jesus is saying here in in his prayer? The church's life together bears witness to the truth of the gospel. See, the the world should be able to look at the church and and know that the gospel is true, and in particular, by our unity and love, despite our diversity. A a community that's that's diverse and yet one in Christ, it, it gives credibility to the gospel. It puts the transforming power of the gospel on display. You know, a, a community where everyone looks alike and, and they all sound alike and they all come from the same neighborhoods and, and work the same jobs and their kids go to the same schools, um, nobody, nobody thinks that's remarkable, right? That's just like, yeah, of course, they love each other. A community that, that loves, a community of love that, that crosses traditional social barriers, that gets people's attention. I mean, a, a church where you know a, a successful white CEO and a, and a single Hispanic mom are, are equals, that, that, that gets people's attention. Well, what's that about? That's not the way things work in the, in the rest of life. And, and on the flip side, Jesus says, if the world doesn't see a Christian community that's diverse but united, they won't believe. It's really striking that Jesus says, I pray that, that they all, this diverse community, may be one so that the world will believe. Jesus has linked his reputation to the church's unity in diversity. And he's saying, look, no one's going to listen unless they see a diverse community loving each other as one people, as one family, as one church. So how do we become that kind of community? You know, how, how can we, Grace Bible Church, embrace both diversity and unity in the gospel? Um, it begins inside of us. You know, we, we could spend a bunch of time trying to brainstorm, you know, evangelistic strategies and, and ways to connect with the neighborhood, but, but first we really need to do heart work. That, that's where this begins. We start by internalizing the gospel. You see, what's really at the root of our struggle with, with diversity and, and unity in the Christian community? Um, yeah, there's, there's practical issues, right? Sometimes there's language barriers. Um, 
You know, it could be um, cultural preferences that we have to work through. But, but that's not really the heart of the problem. The, the heart of the problem is our hearts. You know, if you're not deeply rooted in Christ and, and his gospel, diversity is threatening. Uh, you know, if your identity is, is bound up in who you are, you know, your, your cultural heritage or your identity is bound up in um, what you've accomplished, maybe the, the things you have, the, what you've made of your life, um, where you were born, the, the language you speak, you're always going to be comparing yourself to others, right? Because you're constantly going to be trying to figure out, are they a threat to my identity? Are they a threat to my sense of, of value and worth and importance? You know, you, you're just scanning the crowd. Am I above you or below you? Are, are you climbing the ladder? Are you going to displace me? And if, and if the others are below us, you know, we, we don't want to rub shoulders with them. We're, we're better than that. If they're above us, we resent them, right? Because they have what we want and we're jealous that we can't get it. We constantly compare, trying to figure out if the other person is a threat to my identity. And, and you know what's going on there? We're, we're trying to justify ourselves. We're, we're trying to prove that we are good enough, that we're acceptable, that, that we have value and worth. Um, it, it's really self-righteousness. That, that's what's at the root of our struggles to, to be a diverse community that's united in Christ. So what's the remedy? And it's the very thing Paul's been pressing on us for 15-plus for chapters. And it's this, remember, brothers and sisters, Christian church, remember, Christ has welcomed you. Christ has welcomed you even though you were lost and dead in sin, even though you were under God's judgment and wrath. You were welcomed by Christ. That, that's shorthand for salvation by grace. That, that you deserve God's judgment, but Jesus Christ, the King of Heaven, stooped for you. Jesus Christ was rejected for you. Jesus Christ was despised for you. Jesus Christ experienced exile from the Father at the cross for you. And, and why? Because you, know, you were such a great person, because you deserved it. No, he did it simply, as Paul's been telling us, out of sheer grace. You say undeserved grace, ill-deserved grace. Grace. He he took your sin and guilt and shame, and through faith you received his righteousness. You your sins have been forgiven. You are loved and accepted by God. You've been welcomed in to the family. God has God has exalted you to the place of highest honor. You are an heir together with Jesus Christ. And if that's your identity, if, if that's where you are rooted, diversity is not a threat. Diversity is not a threat because your identity is found in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let me meddle for a moment. Maybe you've heard the saying, um, you haven't really started preaching until you start meddling. So a little gospel meddling is, is good for us from time to time. Um, some of you are probably thinking, you've been meddling. What are you talking about? Um, who would you not want to worship together with in church? Yes, you can affirm they're, they're Christian people. They have a, a faith in Jesus Christ. They belong to Christ. 
just like you do. They're a child of God, just like you. Um, you're glad God loves them, but you don't want to be responsible for that, and, and you'd prefer not to share a pew with them. You know, who would it be? Maybe it's the Republican next door. Maybe it's the Democrat next door. Um, maybe it's the, the family at the grocery store, you know, asking for help in broken English. Um, maybe it's Tesla drivers. I, I don't know what it is for you. Um, who might it be? And, and I think Paul's response to us, if we've learned anything in our study of Romans, would be to let the good news of God's welcome in Christ dismantle your self-righteousness. Let the, the good work of the gospel break up that, that self-righteous exterior. Let, let God's grace you know, humble your heart. Let it, let it expand your heart to embrace all those whom God has embraced through Jesus Christ. A diverse but united church. That's, that's God's design. For, for the church and for this church, Grace Bible Church. That's what God wants for us. That's the kind of church the, the gospel of grace creates. That's the kind of church we want to be. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for the, the riches that we've studied and explored in, over the past year as we've been studying the book of Romans. We pray that that grace would, would get down inside us. We pray that you would do some hard but, but necessary work in our hearts so that we are deeply rooted in Christ and, and not insecure in our identity, but, but found in Christ, able to welcome those whom you've welcomed through Christ. We pray that you would help Grace Bible Church to continue and to grow in embodying the, this beautiful picture of, of diversity and unity in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.